Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections in the sacred scripture, in particular, the book of Revelation. We are at the conclusion of chapter 9, so what I want to do this evening is kind of look back into chapter 9, wrap up our reflections with this chapter, and then get into chapter 10. I will do this primarily with Peter Williamson and Michael Barber as I have been working through their books. Chapter 9 deals with the sixth trumpet, huh? The demonic cavalry of of the sixth trumpet and how it brings death to one-third of the earth's inhabitants, just as the horsemen released at the opening of the fourth seal brought death to one-quarter of the earth's inhabitants. Now, Revelation seems to say that the warning judgments intended to bring a sinful world to its senses will entail the death of large numbers of people. Now, that seems to be a costly warning, huh? Especially for those who die. I mean, the question begs to be asked, how can that be just? In both Revelation chapter 6 and 9, human sinfulness, rather than God's deliberate will, is the true cause of death. What did we talk about last week? Second, we know that God has a different perspective on bodily death than we do. From his eternal perspective, he can see what we only know by faith. Namely, that life in this world, even for those who live to a ripe old age, is only a brief entrance into the vast banquet hall of eternal life. We also know that God is a just yet merciful judge who both knows the extent and the limits of every person's culpability and desires the salvation of all. The church has always taught that No soul that God created is denied an opportunity to respond to his mercy and to receive eternal life, right? Even if we don't know exactly how. Finally, physical death in this world is well suited as a warning to urge us to conversion. Since it is a a symbol of eternal death, what Revelation calls the second death that lasts forever, right? Death in this world is grievous and terrible. We know that. The death of Lazarus led Jesus to weep, and according to some interpreters, to express anger at this enemy of the human race. Nevertheless, what is the true tragedy here? The true tragedy is not physical death per se, but the spiritual death that brings eternal separation from God. And it is this tragedy that the terrible warning of human death here is meant to prevent. Okay, so as we look back into uh, especially verses 13 to 19 and 17 to 19, we ought to be mindful of the distinction between physical death and spiritual death. I know this is something I talked about last week, but we always have to keep that before us. For those of us who have lost a loved one, you know what I'm talking about right now, how death itself is is a way to kind of recollect oneself so as to grab a hold of what's important versus what is unimportant, right? All right, let us go to chapter 9, 
verse 20 and 21. The rest of the human race, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, to give up the worship of demons and idols made from gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic potions, their unchastity, or their robberies. Hmm. So these final verses here in chapter 9 make clear that God's intention for the trumpet judgments, indeed all the calamities thus far, is to lead people to what? Repentance. If I just said that death itself is to lead to repentance, that is because this is the essence of what is in this chapter and certainly what comes through here at the end of this chapter. God's desire is always for salvation. What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1, 3 to 4, that all Christians are to offer supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving for who? Just one? No, everyone, because God wills everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Now, according to John's vision, conversion is not the response of the vast majority. Even the most severe wake-up call possible, the death of a large number of people, if not a loved one, does not suffice to persuade the rest of the human race to repent, to renounce the wrongdoing and turn to God. There is no need to interpret this to mean that no one repented. At the first coming of Christ, Israel as a whole did not repent and, and welcome the Messiah. But many Jews did, as we read in Acts chapter 21. Other texts in Revelation point to the fruitfulness of the church's witness, even if some of the inhabitants of the earth uh, do not repent. It is not that no one repented, but that there was a large number of people that did not repent. So what else could be said here? Well, the nature of humanity's wrongdoing is telling. John depicts the world's idolatry in typical Old Testament language. Huh? They worship the work of their hands which of course we know is infinitely inferior to the creator God of Israel. The idols are made of named materials, gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Then the clincher, <laughs> they cannot see or hear or walk. So the senselessness of idol worship is thus badly exposed as it often is in the Old Testament. However, John's vision discloses a deeper reality, does it not? That at its root, idolatry entails the worship of demons. St. Paul says what in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20? What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So John's words here are a stern warning to Christians tempted to compromise with pagan religions. The sins that the world refuses to renounce are grave violations of the precepts of the Decalogue that most pagans also recognize as wrong. Their murderers, their magic potions, their unchastity, or their robberies. You know, it's interesting, if you were to look at this closely, the list follows the order of the Ten Commandments, but inserted between murder and adultery is magic potions. Now, the Greek word literally means drugs, and like its modern counterpart, could be used positively to mean medicine, or negatively, as in this case, 
to mean potions used as aphrodisiacs or abortifacients or other form of morally uh, objectional purposes. It is commonly translated sorceries or witchcraft, since the word also refers to the casting of, of spells. How about the other word unchastity? This Greek refers to any form of sexual immorality, and the Greek, oh, by the way, is pornia, pornia, where we get the word pornography. So basically, the word for unchastity is what? Pornography. Interesting. So, just as the worship of the true God leads human beings to a, a pattern of behavior that resembles God's character and conduct, so also the worship of idols and demons leads to a pattern of conduct that resembles that of the devil, who was a liar and murderer from the beginning. Just as worship of the true God leads to moral and spiritual freedom, so the worship of idols and the violation of the commandments leads to moral and spiritual bondage. These plagues strike only those who have not received the seal of the servants of God. My dear friends, sin opens a door to demonic activity. Those who practice evil, worship idols, and reject the testimony of Jesus become the prey of the demons they serve. The devil seeks to torment and destroy their adherents, since that is their nature. As literature and human experience attest, a person cannot have commerce with the devil and come out ahead. For this reason, the first and second woes, torment and death visited by cruel demons are ultimately, we could say, self-inflicted. This is, of course, something rooted and anchored in the moral teachings of the church. What is the good news here? This sounds like a lot of bad news. <laughs> What's the good news? The good news is that God works even through the affliction of demons to lead people to conversion and salvation. Because if our Lord dying on the cross is perceived to be bad, you and I both know it is good. It is very good because it leads to our salvation. What about idolatry? You know, Peter Williamson has a, a nice teaching here on idolatry, what it is and, and what's wrong with it. And I thought it would be good to just kind of here again hit the pause button to reflect with, with what he has to say here. He starts off by saying that idolatry is the worship of any god other than the true god or the worship of an image of the true god rather than God himself. Idolatrous worship entails the complete surrender of oneself to anything or anyone besides God. As we know, idolatry is strictly prohibited in the first commandment. What do we read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5? You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below. You shall not bow down before them or serve them. Now, in the ancient world, an image was understood to manifest the, the presence of the God represented. Idol worship is the fundamental sin in the Bible, the cause of both moral disorder in the Gentile world and Israel's exile from the land. Several evils are inherent in idolatry. First, it fails to give God the thanks and worship that he is due. Second, when God's people engage in idolatry, it is a form of spiritual adultery. Have we not talked about this before? Infidelity to God's spousal love. Third, the power of idols is illusionment. There is no 
God other than the one creator of all. Idols, all are merely the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. Psalm 115. They're utterly powerless to help or save. And lastly, the worship of idols puts people in relationship to demons, what we were just talking about. So the consequence of idol worship is summed up in the indictment of Israel. If you were to go back to 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15, pursuing futility, they themselves become futile. Pursuing futility, they themselves become futile. Does this not bring us back to that great proverb of what you feed grows? The more you do something, the more you're going to want to do that one thing, right? Vice begets vice, and virtue begets virtue. So what can we say as it relates to worship? <laughs> that human beings end up resembling what they worship. After speaking of the radical powerlessness of idols, Psalm 115 continues, Their markers will be like them, and anyone who trusts in them. In contrast, those who worship God become like him. In the New Testament, the understanding of idolatry is deepened. Jesus teaches that it is impossible to serve God and mammon, meaning money or wealth. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, identify greed or covetousness, a term for disordered desire that can refer to lust with idolatry. So in Christian usage, an idol refers to anything or anyone that rivals God for a person's love, obedience, trust, or fear. In practice, an idol could be a person, a career, an avocation, a movement, a political party, an ideology, one's nation. All of these things can be idols. And as I have spoken to it before, these gods, these idols, as the Old Testament reminds us, are indeed strange gods. Why? Because when you take a step back and realize what you've been doing and how you've been spending your time with these idols and with these gods, indeed, it is very strange. Very strange. Okay, what more could be said here? Well, although the imagery of Revelation 9 is startling, the reality it depicts is all too common. Almost daily, the mass media informs us about athletes, entertainers, or politicians whose lives have been ruined through a disordered pursuit of wealth, fame, power, sex, or approval, or through addiction to drugs or alcohol. Those are varieties of spiritual idolatry, are they not? Of seeking first or depending on something other than God, and they often lead to other violations of the commandments. Most of us know people who suffer from such things. This is not to be exclusive to athletes, entertainers, or politicians. We all know someone if we ourselves have not walked down that path. The torments these people experience take many forms. Dysfunctional family life and divorce, failure in, in school or work, economic ruin, compulsive behavior, depression, alienation from loved ones, loneliness, 
self-loathing, guilt, fear, anxiety. In some cases, the interior suffering that some people experience pushes them towards suicide, an evil that in Western countries is far too common. These maladies have physical, psychological, and natural causes of various kinds. We know that. But they often also entail some form of demonic oppression. It is our job not to pass judgment on people who are suffering, but to help them in every way we can, especially by our prayers, love, and testimony. Human suffering has many causes, and sometimes very faithful and holy people suffer greatly. When suffering is due to serious sin or idolatry, Jesus stands ready to save, does he not? Especially those who desire his mercy. You know, many Christians have noted an escalation of evil over the last century. Besides the loss of faith and the increase of sexual immorality and drug addiction, the two world wars and other military conflicts have resulted in the deaths of more people than in all previous wars combined. Totalitarian regimes have persecuted Christians, Jews, and other minorities and continue to do so, murdering hundreds of millions. To those, one can add the murder of hundreds of millions of unborn children through abortion. Some have discerned a new wave of demonic activity in these phenomena. Many of us are familiar with the story, or maybe I should better say vision, of Pope Leo XIII. On the eve of the 20th century, Pope Leo XIII is reported to have received a vision about increased satanic influence coming upon the world. At that time, he gave us the great St. Michael prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in this day of battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. We are also aware of a Lutheran sister, Mother Basilea Schlink, who had a vision in the 1960s in which she saw the abyss being opened and evil spirits pouring out. She linked it to the sexual revolution and the social and political chaos unleashed in that period. A few years later, seeing the disorder in the church, Pope Paul VI expressed his concern that, that Satan has entered the temple of God. Satan has entered the temple of God. Wow. Before becoming Pope John Paul II, Cardinal Wojtyla made this sobering statement. We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Think about what we have already talked about as it relates to salvation and repentance and the importance of reading the signs of the times. If it is true, my friends, that we live in a time of exceptional spiritual evil, does that mean that the end of the world is near? The experience of the first century church, which likewise lived through an intensely evil period and, and that of the church in other times and places of great trial, all the history teaches us not to draw hasty conclusions, but to simply vest yourselves with the weaponry that is the sacramental life of the church. 
awareness of the evil at work in our age can make us alert, huh? to discern what is happening, to reject every form of idolatry, to avoid inhaling the fire and the smoke and the sulfur <laughs> that pollutes the atmosphere. And as 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 9 reminds us to resist the devil. Stay sober and alert because Satan is prowling like a roaring lion. Stay sober and alert. Okay, let us turn our attention to chapter 10 and verses 1 to 4. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Mm. Doesn't that one leave you kind of hanging? <laughs> like, what's, what were you about to write, right? <laughs> so, this figure in verses 1 to 3 is more than just a mighty angel. This is Christ's own angel through whom his revelation is given, right? He is so close to Christ that he radiates his glory and is therefore described in terms much like the Lord himself. The comparisons between this angel and Jesus are interesting. He comes down on a cloud as the Son of Man depicted in Daniel 7, right? Daniel 7 verse 13. Over his head is a rainbow, just as there is a rainbow above the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. His face is like the sun, like our Lord's. The figure here has a loud voice, like a lion. Christ has already been identified as a lion. His legs as pillars of fire recall what but the manifestation of God's presence in the wilderness as the fiery glory cloud. Exodus chapter 13, right? Now, what about this word earth? Well, the word earth in Greek can also be translated as land. And for many commentaries, this would seem to be a better translation. We have already seen how the term sea is a symbol for the nations. Similarly, the land is a technical term. It refers to the promised land that God gave Israel. Israel, therefore, is often symbolized by the land. The angel stands on the land and on the sea refers to his authority over Israel and the nations. In this, we will see much more clearly how the book of Revelation not only describes the end of the whole world, but again, the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD. For example, the judgment of the first trumpet in chapter 8, verse 7. What did we come to learn? Was this not a judgment that specifically comes on Jerusalem? Once we see that hail and fire fell on the land. How about verse 4 and this little scroll? The opening of the little scroll in Revelation chapter 10 has many similarities to the opening of the scroll in chapter 5. Both are opened. Both are held by Christ. Again, in both situations, Christ is depicted as a lion. Both accounts involve a strong, mighty angel who cries out. In both visions, someone approaches a heavenly being and takes a book out of the being's hand. And lastly, both concern the destiny of 
peoples, nations, tongues, and tribes and kings. So in this, we have another image of God's covenant promises being fulfilled. But again, the fact that John is to seal up the seven thunders instead of write them down probably refers to the fact that John does not tell us everything he saw. And for whatever reason, God did not want John to write some things down. We can't know, therefore, what, in fact, this refers to. Okay, verses 5 to 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on sea and land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants, the prophets should be fulfilled. So the angel lifts his right hand and swears an oath. And as we've talked about on so many occasions, by swearing an oath, one establishes a covenant. Scholars have therefore understood the prophecy of the little scroll in terms of covenant background. But what covenant is established? An important question to be asked. John explains that it is through this oath that the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants, the prophets, should be fulfilled. Well, for Paul... The mystery describes what but the salvation of Israel with the Gentiles. What do we read? When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Ephesians 3.4 The image of the angel standing on the land and the sea might serve as a confirmation of this interpretation one cannot even begin to grasp the meaning of just not the book of Revelation, but all of sacred scripture without first understanding what covenant means. Not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. Remember, Old Testament and New Testament is Old Covenant and New Covenant. And what is the New Covenant? Well, Jesus Christ said what the New Covenant is. This is my blood of the New Covenant. So it is his transforming blood in the Eucharist that is the new covenant. And all should be seen in light of this. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. Again, if you have any questions, comments, observations out there, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.